And today, as, um, as we celebrate Palm Sunday and the significance of this day, we're going to be looking at John chapter 12. And as we look at John chapter 12, we're going to be answering a big question, and we're going to kind of look at some of the sub-points under this question. But the big question that we're going to be asking is, how will the deepest longings of my heart be satisfied? So if you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 12. If you're using the Bibles in front of you, it'll be on, it'll be on page 899. And uh, we're going to be looking this morning at John 12, starting with verse 12, and then we're going to go right down to verse 26. So let me read that for us. John chapter 12, starting with verse 12. And this is what it states. It says, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your King is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to gather together today and to spend time singing praise to you and hearing about missions like we just did and spending time looking at your word together and meditating on the work that you have accomplished on our behalf. So, Father, we pray that today that that's where our minds would be. We know, Lord, that there are all sorts of things that can easily be on our minds, things that can weigh our hearts down, things that can be heavy loads to bear. But we just unload those things, Lord, over to You, and we're grateful that You are present with us. And we're grateful, Lord, to be able to just carve out time right at the start of our week, not to think about the things that that tend to stress us out or the things that sometimes provoke anxiety, but to come together and to meditate on the truth of Your Word and to realize that You're the One who satisfies the deepest longings of our heart. So Lord, we pray that You would show us how that's done as we look at this portion of Scripture today. And we thank You, Lord, for the privilege to be able to start off our time this week looking at this portion of Your Word. We pray this all in Jesus' name. 
Amen. So there are, and this is, this is um, probably in some respects an understatement, but there are people you know right now who are downcast and discouraged. And if you could look into their hearts, I think that there are certain commonalities that you would see. I think you'd find unmet expectations. I think you'd find disappointment with current circumstances. I think you would find um, unfulfilled dreams and probably in all likelihood some misplaced hope. I think you'd find all of those things and probably a few additional things as well. Their hearts are longing for something that they feel is missing. And it's possible that they're searching for those longings to be fulfilled through a variety of means that really don't have the capacity to fulfill them. So probably through people or different means or goals or opportunities that really cannot satisfy the deepest longings of a person's heart. But we still try, don't we? We try to have those longings fulfilled or met through all kinds of means. And the truth is, this is something that's been a struggle for humanity throughout the course of our entire existence, even from our earliest days. We're quick to forget what can actually satisfy the longings of our hearts, and because we're quick to forget that, we veer off in all kinds of directions instead of acknowledging the truth that has always been right there in front of us. And until we acknowledge this truth, we'll continue to walk through life with a hefty amount of discouragement and a hefty amount of displeasure, and it just goes on and on and on until we understand what the Lord wants us to see. And in the portion of Scripture that we're looking at this morning from John chapter 12, we're actually shown here, among other things, but we're shown how the deepest longings of our heart can be truly satisfied. And one of the things that's brought out in this portion of Scripture when we look at this is that the longings of our heart are satisfied through the leadership of a benevolent king. Now, what do I mean by that? Through the leadership of a benevolent king. Well, look again at the first few verses. Look at verse 12 and the verses that follow that. Let me reread them. It says, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Let's pause there for just a second. Good leadership is something that we all value and we all crave. We crave it in all spheres of life. No matter what sphere of life you could list, we crave good leadership in it. It matters in our homes, it matters in our churches, it matters in our workplaces, It matters in our nation. It matters everywhere. And we tend to rejoice when we're being led well. And we tend to grumble when we feel like we aren't being led well. And there are many people who aspire to become leaders in their respective fields, believing that leadership is glorious and believing that leadership is enjoyable all the time. By the way, have any of you um, ever mistakenly thought that? (laughs) That leadership is glorious, and leadership is enjoyable all the time. But you know what you discover when you have the opportunity to talk to people that have lasted in leadership for a long time? I remember years ago, so this is 20 years ago, I remember engaging in conversation with another pastor who, who had been serving in ministry for a full 50 years at that point. And I had a lengthy conversation with them. He was supposed to go out to his car, and he and I ended up talking for a couple hours. And I learned a lot of things from him in that two-hour conversation. 
But one of the things that I learned in that conversation is actually how you last in leadership. And those who last in leadership for long periods of time, they understand that leadership has a synonym. You know what its synonym is? Not cinnamon, by the way, those of you that had like the sticky buns from the back. Its synonym is what? Service. That's the synonym for good leadership. Service. A real leader is not a selfish boss. But a real leader is a humble servant who's willing to experience pain and inconveniences and criticism and many sacrifices for the greater good of those that he or she is called to serve. The best leaders love the people they serve. And no leader has ever demonstrated love quite like Jesus Christ. And we see his love all throughout the course of the Gospels as they give us account after account of how he interacted with people. And when you, when you look at this por- particular portion of Scripture... This portion of Scripture takes place on a day that we typically refer to as Palm Sunday. And at that time, Jesus, who had earned quite the reputation as a teacher and as a healer and as a leader, it tells us here in the Scripture that he was coming to Jerusalem. And what he was doing as he was coming to Jerusalem was he was coming to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. And now word was also getting around that Jesus had miraculously raised Lazarus from the dead. That news was starting to spread. That news was starting to get around. And so hearing that Jesus, who had raised Lazarus from the dead, hearing that he was coming into Jerusalem, we're told in this portion of God's Word that large crowds lined up to greet him on his way into the city. They wanted to see this guy. They wanted to see this person who had this reputation. They wanted to see him with their own eyes. And so as Jesus came into the city, the Scripture tells us that he came sitting on a young donkey. And you look at that and you're like, all right, well, that's an interesting thing to note. Why is that noted there? Well, when you look at the whole context of God's Word, what Jesus was doing is He's sitting on that donkey, as He's coming into Jerusalem. He's doing this in fulfillment of a prophecy that was given through the prophet Zechariah hundreds of years earlier. And that prophecy from Zechariah 9.9, I'll just bring it up here for us to see. It says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. So that was from Zechariah 9, verse 9. And Jesus, obviously, was indeed the king that they were waiting for. But as he comes to the people, as he's coming here, as he's on his way into Jerusalem, he's coming with humility. And as he's doing this as well, he's come to offer them salvation. But you know what's sad about the occurrence that we're seeing here in John chapter 12? He's offering them salvation, but what do they really want? It's not salvation that they're craving, is it? All they really want is temporarily good political leadership. That's what they want. A political leader. That's what they're looking for him to do. They value political leadership more than they value the abundant life they can have through Christ and the eternal life that they can have through Christ. They're not as interested in those things. They're interested in political leadership that they believe that Christ can offer him. And so you have the crowds in this portion of Scripture. It tells us that they're waving palm branches. And by the way, that had a significant... um, like a, just like a significance in that era of time 
that's worth noting is these people are waving these palm branches. You ever wonder to yourself, why, you know, why is this called Palm Sunday? Why were they waving these palm branches? What's the significance of this? Well, in that context, during that era, if you come into a city and people start waving palm branches at you, what they were doing is they were demonstrating through the waving of palm branches, it was symbolic in that culture that a victory had been won over an enemy. So you're waving these palm branches in celebration because a victory has been won over an enemy. And because many of these people are basically just looking at Jesus to be a political leader, what they're doing is they're waving these palm branches and praising Him and doing all these things. And by the way, these are the same voices that in just a few days will be the same ones saying, crucify Him. So there's definitely some irony in what we're seeing in this passage. But they were convinced that Jesus, in this moment at least, They were convinced that Jesus was the promised king who would come in the line of King David. And what they were expecting him to do was to overthrow Roman rule. Because as we know, the Roman government had control of that territory during that era of history. And the Roman government was hated by the people of Israel. They hated it. And just think about it from our context here. Let's say we still get to live as Americans. Let's say we still get to do the things that we get to do. But another country really gets to call the shots here in our country. Don't you think that would irritate you? I could speak from my own mind and from my own heart. That would absolutely irritate me. That would infuriate me. The thought of that would infuriate me. And here you have the people of Israel. They're looking at Jesus as He's coming into into Jerusalem. And they're saying, finally... The king we've been waiting for. The one in the lineage of David who's going to overthrow Roman rule. And our nation is going to be restored to the place of prominence that it once enjoyed under King David. That's what they were looking for. That's what they really wanted. They wanted power. They wanted prominence. They wanted political leadership. Well, Jesus certainly is that long-promised king. I mean, that absolutely is true. But before he reigns visibly as king in the way that they were expecting, he had a mission he wanted to fulfill and and was ordained to fulfill first. And what he had come to do was to offer so much more than just temporary political leadership. Jesus has come to satisfy the deepest longings of our souls. Now think about this from a personal standpoint for just a moment. Our souls are vacant and empty without Him. My soul and your soul will seek fulfillment from a variety of things if we're convinced that those things have the capacity to satisfy the craving of our soul. So, you know, it's not a surprise, I'm sure, if I admit to you that there have been certain seasons in my life that I have sought after things that did not have the capacity to fill the void. Because I'm sure that if I told you my story, you'd say, yeah, I've done the same exact thing. And you know how I know you've done the same exact thing? Because every one of us has. Every one of us has tried to fill that void in our soul with things that don't have the capacity to do it. So we seek to obtain certain objects that we think can maybe satisfy or fill that void. Sometimes we look to relationships with other people to, to try and fill that void. You know, I, I mean, there are plenty of people in this world that think that they will only find a, a sense of completion or satisfaction if they find just that, that right person or, or something like that. We've all done that, right? Titles, trophies, all sorts of things. We think this is what's going to make my life complete. And we think that these things are going to fill that void, and then we realize 
it's not, or hopefully we realize, if the Lord opens our eyes to see it, what we really needed was the benevolent leadership of Christ in our life. Only He can bring our hearts the peace that we long for. Meaning that until we become convinced of that, we will wear ourselves out chasing vanities. I've chased plenty plenty of vanities over the course of my life. I'm certain you have as well. We all have. And until we become convinced that Christ is sufficient, we will chase after whatever we think is going to fill that void. And the truth is, the benevolent King, Jesus Christ, He's the one that fills the void. The Scripture goes on to tell us a little bit more about the longings of our heart and how they become satisfied. And it illustrates it by showing us by the fulfillment of the Word of God, these things are satisfied. Well, what do I mean by that? Look at verse 16 of John chapter 12. Let me reread down to verse 19. There it says this, His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about Him and had been done to Him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Let's pause there for just a moment. So I'm grateful to have two things that many people who lived in generations prior to us did not have. I'm grateful to have the ability to read. And I'm grateful to have unlimited and immediate access to the Word of God. Unlimited and, and immediate access. You know, I used to keep, and I still do actually, I used to keep a copy of the Bible in the glove compartment in my car. And you know how often I still use that, that copy of the Bible? I used to use it a lot. You know how often I use it now? Hardly ever. Why? They're like, Pastor, are you saying that you don't read the Bible? No, it's the opposite. I have the whole thing on my phone. So I don't even have to go out to my car to get it. The whole thing's in my phone, meaning the entirety of the Scriptures are in my pocket at any given time. I have immediate access to every portion of God's Word in a way that's unlike generations that lived before us. You have that, I have that. That's a real gift. I remember when I first became um, very serious about my relationship with the Lord and, um, and actually studying the Scriptures. There's a very noticeable change that happened in my life right around age 15. And um, I, I actually have some witnesses here today that could probably testify to that. My aunt and my uncle are visiting today and, and my cousins and and uh, I don't want my uncle to tell you these stories, but he could tell you some stories about a pretty miserable season of my life. I remember uh, my dad um, saying to me at one point, he's like, yeah, you were my hardest kid. <laughs> you were my hardest kid to raise. And when I think back to that, and, and again, you know, Uncle Scott, thank you and family for being here today, but please don't corroborate too much of this. The, um, but I, I, you know, I remember um, getting to a, a point in my life where all of a sudden there was a line that was drawn. And I had an experience where I started to realize that Jesus is who He says He is. And since He is who He says He is, His Word is something that I'm going to examine. I'm going to investigate. I became a voracious reader of the Word of God. And I remember asking my mother at one point, it was Christmas time, 
uh, when I was 15 years old, and uh, she asked me, what, what do you want for Christmas? And I asked her for a study Bible. And uh, because I, I, prior to that, I didn't even know such a thing existed. And I started seeing these things and people telling me about them. And I was like, I need a good study Bible. I wanted a Bible that had all sorts of notes and a Bible that had all sorts of background information and all sorts of information on the history that was taking place there. Just some sort of study thing so that I could understand better some of the things that I was reading. And so for Christmas that year, I got a study Bible. And this is what I would do. And maybe some of you have done this as well. I'd sit in my room and I'd sit at my desk and I'd take the Bible. And when you're first taking a look at the Bible, you look at it and you're like, okay, this is big. Uh, we had the privilege recently to encourage someone, new believer in Christ at our church plant in West Conchahawken. She said, hey, I need to get a Bible. I encouraged her to get a study Bible. It showed up in the mail, and this is what she said to me the next Sunday when I saw her. She's like, that's huge. How am I supposed to read that entire thing? And that's what I used to think. Like I'd sit there at my desk, and I was like, I have no idea where to start, because I had no idea how the Bible was organized. These were not things that were familiar to me. And I was like, all right. And I'd just pray, and I'd say, Lord, show me where I'm supposed to go. And I'd just part the pages, and I'd be like, all right, looks like I'm here. And then I'd start reading there, and I'd have no idea what I was reading because I didn't start from the beginning of any book. I didn't understand the way that the Bible was organized, that you have books of law at the beginning, and then books of history after that, and then books of poetry, and then books of prophecy. And then you jump into the New Testament, and you have the Gospels. And then you have Paul's letters. and Or no, then you have a book of history even before Paul's letters. And then you have Paul's letters, and then you have... Uh, the general letters, and then you have another book of prophecy right there at the end. But I didn't know that stuff yet. I found that out afterward, but at first I just started reading, and I started reading, and I started reading, and I started reading. And one of the things that, one of the primary things that began convincing my heart that what I was reading was true was fulfilled prophecy. When I would read through things from the Old Testament, that you would then see fulfilled in very specific ways in the New Testament. And I was like, wow, like this is fascinating watching this. And even some things that aren't necessarily recorded in the New Testament that are referenced in the Old Testament that were then later fulfilled just in the general course of history. And the more I read fulfilled prophecy, I was like, I've become convinced that this is true. And the fact that Jesus, so put this in the context of what was taking place here in, in John chapter 12, but the fact that Jesus the Messiah was riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, I imagine that that note can probably seem insignificant. All right, he's riding on a donkey. Seems better than walking, right? Maybe, you know, if it's a polite donkey that goes in the direction you want it to go. It says it was, it was young, you know. Um, so, you know, who knows what it's going to do, right, theoretically, although I believe that Christ had control over that. But the fact that he rode into, into Jerusalem on a donkey, you look at the prophecies related to the Messiah, and 500 years earlier, you have a seemingly obscure prophecy in the book of Zechariah that tells us that, that the Messiah, that the King of Israel was going to come riding on a donkey. There's many other prophecies of Christ all throughout the Old Testament. Some predicted His kingship. Others accurately predicted His lineage and His place of birth and His region of ministry activity. When you look at things like Psalm 22, it tells you some of the words He would say directly. And we're also told elsewhere some of the miraculous ways that He would heal. The manner in which He would be executed, which by the way wasn't even utilized during the course of the Old Testament era. 
So they're describing a manner of execution that wasn't even in practice yet. Describes his resurrection from the grave. It points to the resurrection. These prophecies were divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit to give added confirmation to our hearts that Jesus is indeed who he says he is. And in scriptures like this, like from John chapter 12, when we look at what was taking place here, I think it's very interesting to observe the reaction of the disciples because the disciples, as they're with Jesus, keep in mind they've been with him for more than three years at this point, and they've been traveling with him, and they've been learning from him, and they've been trained by him, but they didn't always catch on right away to what Jesus was doing. In fact, there are multiple instances where Jesus explicitly stated to them that they could expect him to be rejected, that they could expect him to be killed, and that they could expect that he would be raised back to life. But when these things happened, what was the reaction of the disciples? They were surprised. They were scared. They were confused, even though Jesus had told them these things were going to take place. And this, more, this portion of Scripture that we're looking at today, it mentions a little bit about that confusion as well. We're told here that they didn't understand many of these things at first. But they came to understand Christ's teaching and His mission much better after His crucifixion and His resurrection. It's like the light went on in their head at that point. And this passage tells us that there were others at that time who also didn't understand. It references the Pharisees. If you're not familiar with the Pharisees, the Pharisees were a strict religious sect of Judaism during that time that basically went around and looked at everybody else and said, you're not as holy as me and you're not as holy as me, and you're not as holy as me. And they just went around basically memorizing large portions of Scripture, but then judging everybody else that they felt didn't meet their, their particular standard. Do you ever meet a modern-day Pharisee? Aren't they delightful people? You know, friends in your life. I have a few friends in my life over the course of my life uh, that I would say, yeah, kind of modern-day Pharisees. I'd actually have to say for a season of my life, I probably would have uh, fit pretty well in their club as well until the Lord said, hey, you know, that's not the perspective you're supposed to carry. And when you look at this portion of Scripture, it tells us that there were these Pharisees who could see these great clouds coming to Jesus, or the, these crowds. Did I say clouds? It sounded like in my mind I said clouds. Great crowds coming to Jesus, Right? And they're flocking to him. And they're, they're, they're curious to see him. And they're curious to observe him. And they're curious uh, to watch what he's doing. But the Pharisees are upset about what they're observing as these, these crowds of people are flocking to Christ. Because what the Pharisees have been doing is they had been trying to persuade people not to follow Jesus. But at the time, they were starting to feel like the whole world was enamored with him. They're starting to feel like their efforts have been fruitless. And so they're getting quite frustrated with it. But when you look at this portion of Scripture, what stands out to you? You know, what stands out to you about a portion of Scripture like this? You know, does your heart rejoice to see prophecy fulfilled? Because that's what they were seeing right there in their midst. Prophecy was being fulfilled. And does the fulfillment of God's promises strengthen your confidence in Him? And are you content in the knowledge that nothing escapes His sight? No situation, no matter how bleak it is, is beyond His control. Our hearts can rest in the Lord who delights to fulfill the promises of His Word. And that's what Jesus was doing right there in their midst. He fulfills the promises of the Word of God. He fulfills the prophecies related to Him. The fulfillment 
of the Word of God. It brings peace to our hearts as we watch Christ fulfill these things. And the Scripture goes on to show us one additional thing, and that's this. So we're talking about the satisfaction that we need for the longings of our soul. We see that it comes in our new indestructible life that Christ supplies. Look at verse 20. There it says this, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, because of the Passover, you have many people, they had come to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. And among those who came to worship the Lord in Jerusalem at the time were Gentiles. In this passage, when you look at how they're specifically referred to here, they're referred to as Greeks. But that, ter- that term didn't always mean that you were Greek by heritage. Uh, it was often a general term that was used by Jews to describe Gentiles. So sometimes just all Gentiles, regardless of where you came from, would just be referred to as Greeks. And so these Greeks... Obviously, they weren't Jewish, but what we know about them is that they still revered the Lord. And they had come to Jerusalem to worship. Now, it's clear that some of these Gentiles were genuinely seeking to know and understand God's will for their life. And they also wanted to meet Jesus. And so they asked Philip. They asked him if he would arrange for that to take place, that they would be able to meet Jesus. And so Philip then mentions that to Andrew, and then together they go and tell Jesus. And Jesus responds to them in a way that that gives a deeper level answer that I imagine probably initially puzzled Philip and Andrew. As they were first hearing this, they were probably a little bit puzzled about what Jesus meant by this. But what he was doing was he was giving them an answer that showed that he very much had in mind all that he was about to experience by giving his life for the sake of mankind. It was all in his mind. He all realized it was on the cusp of being uh, fulfilled right there in their presence. So Jesus tells them that the hour had now come for him to be glorified, but that good things would come from his death. Just like good fruit eventually comes from, from a grain of wheat that falls to the ground and dies. He says, you know, good things come from that. Well, good things are going to come from his death, he's pointing out. And so, just as Jesus was willing to give himself as a sacrifice for us, he also says that we too should be willing to follow him, even to that degree of severity. Now, the comments Jesus makes in this passage, they force us to be introspective. You know, this is the type of thing, you can't really just look at it and just say, all right, you know, that's an interesting portion of Scripture. Uh, an interesting historical account. Okay, this is why we have Palm Sunday. This is what we're celebrating, things of that nature. But he's, he's provoking some deeper level thought that I think encourages us to ask some questions about our own heart. And I think really one of the biggies that it asks us to be thinking about relates to what we prize on this earth more than we prize 
from Christ. Meaning, is there anything on this earth that we prize or value more than we value new life in Christ? Because what Christ, realize, or what Christ reveals here, and what He speaks about elsewhere in Scripture, is that He gives all who trust in Him, all who follow Him, new, indestructible life the moment they come to faith in Him. So the moment you come to faith in Christ, you ever, you know, we talk about eternal life. And I value eternal life, and I hope you value eternal life, but sometimes we think of eternal life as being something that happens in the future. Do you realize that the moment you trust in Jesus Christ, your eternal life has already begun? It's begun. It's underway now. You're going to live forever. The shell you currently occupy, yeah, it's going to wear out, and then you get a new one. And you live forever. Christ's What He does is He gives us new indestructible life the moment we come to faith in Him. And what He does is He calls us to love Him, and He calls us to value the new life that He's granted us so much that our earthly life pales in comparison when we try and uh, stack it up next to the eternal life that He grants us. And so with that in mind, if that's something that we believe to be true, The kind of question that he's asking us here to be pondering is, you know, is there any sacrifice we wouldn't make for the Lord? Or is there anything that we still prize more than we value Him? Now, I'm grateful for the promise that Christ shares in this passage, and this is where I want to finish up this morning. Because I think, admittedly, it's very easy for us to value earthly honors. There's all sorts of things in this world that we would say, all right, that's an earthly honor, that seems valuable, that's another earthly honor, that seems valuable, but, but the Lord has greater things in store for those who follow Him than any earthly honor we can conjure up. Jesus said, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. What does that mean? If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. You know, when we read that earlier and when we reread it a few moments ago, Did you wonder about that that statement? You know, again, he says, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So what does that mean? Well, it means that those who love and trust Christ will give evidence of that love and trust through serving him. And just as we're justified and just as we're sanctified through faith in Christ, one day the Father is also going to glorify those who trust in Christ. So imagine that. What the Scripture teaches is that there's a day coming when our humble bodies, if you trust in Jesus Christ, your humble body is going to be transformed into a new, glorious body that is going to resemble Jesus in more ways than we could possibly imagine. I love what it tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 48 and 49, it says this, and you have the Apostle Paul writing there in that letter to the Corinthians, a comparison between Adam and Christ. And he's referring to Adam as the man of dust, and he's referring to Christ as the man of heaven. And this is the comparison that Paul makes here for us. He says, as was the man of dust, so as was Adam, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And what he's talking about there is the fact that there is a day coming. If you believe that the Word of God is true and that what it's stating is accurate, that there is a day coming that those who trust in Jesus Christ are going to be given a brand new, glorified, resurrected body. Not subject to pain, 
or sorrow or illness or any of those things. A body that is not going to be, you know, right now, we're tempted by all sorts of things. You know, our minds and our hearts and and our lives, sometimes we go after all sorts of things that are unhealthy. In our glorified state, we won't be tempted by evil. We won't be tempted by unhealthy things. And Scripture tells us, you know, I don't know what you have thought about when you think about eternity and, and how you'll live in eternity, but Scripture tells us that for those who are in Christ, you're not going to just be floating around as like, like a formless spirit or something like that. Scripture tells us that you're going to be given a brand new body in eternity, except it's not subject to death. And it's not subject to sin or illness or pain or sorrow or any of those things. It's a glorified body. And again, in John 12, again, what did Jesus say? He said, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So if you trust in Christ, if you love Christ, and that is born out in your life through eager service of Christ as you serve His people, that doesn't go unnoticed by the Lord. And the Lord reminds us in His Word, that a day of glorification is coming. So let's say this as we wrap up. The deepest longings of our hearts will not be satisfied by anything that can ultimately be taken away from us. The deepest longing of your heart, the deepest longing of my heart, will not be satisfied by anything that can be taken away from us. There is nothing that this world can offer us that has the capacity to bring us eternal good. Many people, including those who were in the crowd that first Palm Sunday, many people think they'll find satisfaction and rest through creature comforts, through political leaders, or simply by getting their own way. But in the end, the longings of our hearts can only be satisfied by Christ. And when we're convinced that He is enough, my heart is convinced, when your heart is convinced that Christ is enough, will finally experience the contentment that we seek. And every trial, every loss, and every disappointment is going to seem trivial compared to the incomprehensible blessings that we receive from Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. And thank You for the privilege that it is to be able to spend some time here at the start of our week taking a look at what Your Word states Lord, we're grateful for it, and we're grateful for all of your blessings, and we're grateful that when we look at a portion of Scripture like what we're looking at today, we can see that you satisfy the longings of our hearts. The deepest longing of our heart, Father, we know is for, it's ultimately for you. You satisfy that longing through your Son, Jesus Christ, our benevolent King, the fulfillment of the Word of God, the One who supplies a new indestructible life. Lord, we're grateful for these things. We know we don't deserve them, but we're grateful for them. As we look at a portion of Scripture like we looked at today, we pray, Father, that we wouldn't be the type of people who out of one side of our mouth give praise to Your Son, and then out of the other side of our mouth we're effectively calling that He be crucified. We know that that was the the irony that was taking place that first Palm Sunday when we look at the crowd that seemed so eager to see Him, so eager to see Jesus, the one who had just raised Lazarus from death. They wanted to catch a glimpse of Him. They wanted to talk to Him. They wanted to meet with Him, and yet so many of them didn't really believe. They were just there for a spectacle. They were just there hoping that somehow He was going to overthrow the Roman government. 
But Lord, we know that you supply so much, so much more for us than that through your Son. You satisfy the deepest longings of our soul. You grant us abundant life. You grant us eternal life. You give us hope for the future, and you tell us that there will be a day when we will be glorified in your presence. Lord, that's hard for us to wrap our minds around because that's the type of thing that we have to accept by faith from you. It's not something that we've already seen with our eyes, and so that's the type of thing that we can either trust you for or not. But Lord, we choose today to trust you for these things. And we're grateful for all that you have in store for those who know you. Lord, we pray that when we think of you, we wouldn't think of you as being off at a distance, but that we would recognize that you're present right here with us. We're grateful that you were willing to take on flesh and walk among us and endure chastisement and pain and suffering and criticism and, and ultimately be executed on our behalf and then rising from death securing victory over sin, Satan, and death. You share that victory with us, Lord, and so we're grateful for that. We pray that we would rejoice in this truth. So thank you, Father, for all that you've done on our behalf through your Son, and thank you for how much you love us and how you make that, that very clear and very visible in the type of things that we just read together this morning. We pray that you convince our heart Convince our minds of these things and help us to walk with you joyfully each and every day. And we thank you for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.